Good morning, my name's Brenda. I'll be bringing the second reading to you, which follows directly on from the first reading. So I'll be reading John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Well, good morning. My name's Pete Stacey. If we haven't met, I'm the evening pastor and I run all that happens with the youth on a Friday night. And uh, as I was trying to sing now, I'm thinking, I'm still croaky from trying to chase after those youngins on, on Friday. Uh, this is a great story, isn't it? It's a really a, a, just a beautiful story. And in these early chapters of John's Gospel, he, he's teaching us about Jesus by showing the way he relates to different people. Chapter 2, Jesus brought joy and, and protected a family's dignity at a wedding. Chapter 3, he patiently helps a religious teacher understand God's truth. And then here in chapter 4, he brings acceptance and hope to a disgruntled woman. He's a real fair dinkum good bloke, isn't he? But he's vastly more than that. If we take the time to dig a little bit deeper, in chapter 2, he, he changes water into wine and then says that there's a change coming with the temple. No longer do, do people meet God in a place, but through a person, his own body. And then in chapter 3, as he's teaching one of Israel's prominent teachers, we see that Jesus is not only the source of real truth, but he's the source of eternal life for all who believe. So friends, as we look at chapter 4, let's ask God to help us see the wonderful treasures in and through this story. Let's, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you love us and have our very best closest to your heart. Please give us wisdom to understand your word and the grace to believe it and the humility to obey it. Question for you. 
What are John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples, and our link missionary, Mal Forrest, who John just prayed for uh, on our behalf, what do they have in common? They've all baptised someone in the Jordan River. (laughs) How cool is that? Uh, I was chatting to to Mal a little while ago. Uh, Pretty cool, I thought. Um, This scene kind of starts like that. It's actually not the Jordan. It's it's over in Judea. Uh, But there they're baptising and Jesus is gaining more and more popularity than John. And the Pharisees have heard about it. Now, Jesus knew that the conflict with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, was going to be the catalyst for his eventual suffering and death. But he also knew that his time had not yet come. We heard that just a chapter ago. So in verse 3, he says, He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, that's about a 150-kilometer journey, several days. And he had to go through Samaria. That was the shortest route, straight up. But this is where it gets really interesting. You see, most Jews who took God seriously, and that would be Jesus, right? (laughs) <laughs> they, they actually avoided Samaria any way they could. In fact, they usually went east to the, to the Rift Valley and up and then uh, to Galilee that way. Why? Because there was a deep distrust and dislike between Jews and Samaritans going back hundreds of years See, when the northern tribes of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC, that's a long time ago, uh, only the poor were left in the land. And over time, they intermarried with various other ethnic groups. And and later on, the the Babylonians and Persians brought in other groups in. And and their beliefs became a mix of, of Judaism and other ideas. In fact, they only kept the first five books of the Old Testament as their scriptures. 150 years later after this, the Babylonians, so it's sort of um, uh, 500-ish BC now, uh, they'd come to power, power and they conquered Jerusalem and Judah. That was the bit of Israel that was left. And they took them off to Babylon. Ex- they were in exile for like 70 plus years. And then by that stage, the Persian Empire was ruling, (laughs) keeps changing. Uh, And over the next 50 years, the Persians allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem in several waves and start rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, Uh, you know, the wall, remember Nehemiah? Yep, And, and the temple itself. Now, rebuilding a city is a whopping job. That's a mammoth task. And the Samaritans, they offered to help. But the Jews said, no way. You're half-breeds. Your worship is corrupted. And you know what? While we're at it, you're not even welcome to enter Jerusalem at all. Hmm. So much for saying thanks for the help. You can imagine why the Jews were so uh, struggling to, uh, with Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan at that point. It gets worse. Since they weren't welcome in Jerusalem... This is, this is about 400 years before Jesus at this point. Um, they weren't welcome in Jerusalem, let alone the temple itself. The Samaritans built their own temple uh, to worship God on Mount Gerizim, which has a lot of history uh, in the Old Testament. But get this. In 128 BC, the Jews 
in armed conflict, burnt it to the ground. And in the skirmish, lives were lost, and there's not much love. Look again at verse 4. Jesus, what does it say? Had to go through Samaria. <laughs> not because it was the only way to get there, but because there was a divine appointment waiting at a well. There was a whole region of people who needed to meet him and hear the good news that he came to give. So Jesus arrives at this famous old well. This is not it. <laughs> like so many uh, biblical sites, the real well has a whopping church built over it now. Um, but it would have looked like this once upon a time. Uh, so far in this gospel, John has uh, carefully showed us that Jesus is God. But look at it here. He has no hesitation in revealing Jesus' humanity. Jesus is tired. He's in need of a drink. It's fascinating, isn't it? In this story that we're looking at, the one who offers living water is thirsty. As the story continues, this helps us recognize that Jesus is talking about spiritual thirst, not physical thirst. Now, the disciples, they take off to town to get some food and Jesus is alone at the well, uh, but not for long. A woman shows up to get water. Now, it's really strange because women usually travel together and in the cool of the day, early morning, late afternoon, uh, and yet here it's noon. It's probably very hot. And she's alone. It, it kind of suggests she was a social outcast. And when Jesus reveals her relationship history a little bit later on, it makes sense. She's a woman of questionable morality. Jesus has every reason not to speak to her. I mean, from a cultural point of view, men rarely spoke to women publicly. That's why the disciples are so surprised when they come back. And that's why it's so appropriate when Jesus says, go get your husband. From a racial point of view, Jesus is a Jew, a Jewish rabbi, no less, and she's a Samaritan. And from a religious point of view, he's the son of God and she's a notable local sinner. So when Jesus asks her for a drink, she is genuinely shocked. In that culture, his request conveys real warmth, acceptance, kindness. And I find this really confronting. How often do we, in our sinful hearts, decide that certain people are just not worthy of our time? Certain people make us feel too uncomfortable to talk to, let alone share the gospel. Or perhaps we think we're, we're so sure that certain people are simply not going to respond nicely to the gospel if we do find the courage to share. What did we learn last week? Jesus came to give eternal life to whoever believes, even an ostracized Samaritan woman. Jesus' response in verse 10 to her initial surprise is really clever. He made her curious about the things of God. If you knew the gift of God, 
He made her curious about his own identity. Who it is who asks you? And he made her curious about what he could give her. He would have given you living water. If you're doing the kids' sheet, that's number one there. I think when it comes to sharing our faith, it's worth asking God, Lord, you know, how can I share with so-and-so in a way that is true to your word and at the same time attractive to their heart? Something that they're going to engage with and understand. Really is like putting salt on the tongue of a thirsty person. Well, she's curious. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Actually, that well was deep. It was seven feet wide, a straight shaft going down uh, for over 100 feet. That's really deep. Where can you get this living water, she says. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Now, the wording here kind of implies a no response. Uh, we'd say something like, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? Now, Jesus is not defensive. In fact, he keeps the spotlight on the good news he's offering. Verse 14, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's a beautiful picture of the joy the Holy Spirit gives to a new believer that grows and deepens until we leave this earthly life and our satisfaction is complete in God's presence. Unfortunately for this lady, her racial heritage is a bit of a roadblock because the Samaritans, remember, they ditched all of the Old Testament except the first five books. So she didn't know that the prophet Jeremiah had spoken about God as a fountain of living water. A few chapters later, Jesus explains it for his disciples and for us. He says this, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed him were later to receive. And of course, when was that fulfilled? Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. Wonderful moment. Her response in verse 15, she starts so well. Sir, give me this water. (laughs) But then it's really obvious that she's misunderstood completely. She's still thinking real water, not spiritual water, spiritual thirst. So Jesus exposes her thirst by going to her relationships. Go get your husband, he says. And it opens a can of worms of pain and brokenness and shame. And Jesus is pinpointing the real thirst of her soul. She's been looking for meaning, for satisfaction in relationships. And kids, that's the second one on that sheet. You're following along. I remember being quite offended a number of years ago when I heard a preacher refer to our hearts as idol factories. Oh, that's a bit harsh. I kind of recoiled at the thought because I thought, you know, I feel like I really love God. And I do. But I've also come to see how easily I, and I think the whole culture that we belong to, we continually try to satisfy the thirst of our souls with things other than God. We enjoy God's abundant blessings and his provision and his many good gifts, but so often it's the expense of enjoying the giver himself. 
We're so thirsty. We want, we long, we search, we reach out, we pursue. But only Jesus satisfies our soul. It reminds me of that well-known quote of Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Now perhaps relationships aren't the big thing that distracts your heart from God personally. Maybe it's wealth or financial security or maybe it's power and influence or maybe it's popularity or maybe it's simply just being accepted by your Facebook friends. Whatever it is, if you're searching for ultimate happiness and satisfaction apart from God, Jesus is saying very clearly to all of us here, it will not work. It will not satisfy. In fact, the more we pursue satisfaction apart from God, the more it eludes our grasp. It's like a mirage that vanishes the closer we get. And this is the real turning point in the story. Because the woman now realizes that Jesus is someone pretty amazing. A prophet, she says in verse 20. A few verses later, she'll say, could this be the Messiah? And so she asks about worship. It's a third point, kids. She asks about worship because worship is all about access to God. The Samaritans thought they could worship God in, in whatever way they, you know, they, they wanted. They kind of made up their own version. The Jews said the Samaritans were cut off and had no access to God. She wants to know the truth. This living water sounds so wonderful. But there's no hope if she can't access it. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Friends, true worship is not determined by a place, but a person. The Holy Spirit, who will be poured out on the day of Pentecost. Jesus gives him to everyone who believes. And that means true worship is not restricted to a particular day or, or a church service or a slow song. Worship encompasses all of life because the Holy Spirit comes in and he stays there until we're with the Lord. Forever. That's why Paul says true worship means offering our lives as a living sacrifice. In other words, all of our whole life devoted, lived for the glory of God, doing God's will. And Jesus was pretty blunt here. He, he's contrasting the ignorance of the Samaritans with the true understanding of the Jews. That's because truth matters. Sincerity in what we believe is not enough to save us. We need to actually believe what is true. 
on a family trip to Bundaberg years ago, I sincerely believed I was on the right road. It was late at night. The rest of the family was obviously tired. And I wasn't on the right road. No amount of belief would have got us there. I had to humble myself, turn around and follow the right direction. And sometimes we have to do just that with God. No matter how much kindness Jesus showed this woman, it would not be at the expense of truth. Friends, we must be careful not to tolerate unbiblical ideas in our own lives. And we need to love other people enough to to gently help them see where their beliefs do not line up with Jesus. We need to love others enough to help them see their sin. Now, we often think that talking about sin, which separates us from God, uh, that talking about sin will somehow turn people away. Look at what the woman says when she goes to tell the people of her town. Verse 29. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She'd been confronted, but she found truth in life. Friends, we need to be honest and tell the truth because eternity is at stake. Uh, worship in spirit and truth is what happens when a person hears the good news about Jesus, that's the truth, and responds by turning from sin and believing in Jesus, and he gives them the Holy Spirit to live in their hearts from that time on. From that, then on, they live with full access to God, a real relationship with their maker. And the Spirit of God in their heart who guides them, comforts them, convicts them of sin, counsels them and fills them with joy like a fountain welling up to eternal life. What a glorious picture of the Christian life. And Jesus is a living illustration. His disciples arrive back, the woman leaves and he tells his disciples about real food, real spiritual nourishment. And it's all about doing the will of God. Verse 34, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And it's no coincidence that the last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. Jesus' mission was to bring salvation to all people. That's why he had to go through Samaria. That's why, a couple of years later, he had to die on the cross, obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. Friends, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. He calls us to love him enough to live for him. As Jesus speaks to his disciples about the harvest, about doing the will of God, he encourages them and us with five simple truths. Number one, the harvest is ready. So often we assume that we'll we'll have another opportunity to talk to someone down the track, maybe four months down the track, like the illustration here. Or worse, that uh, someone else will have the opportunity to tell them, so we're kind of like off the hook. Point number two As we do the will of God, we're going to be rewarded. Number three, this work is of eternal value. Number four, there are different roles. Throughout history, there have always been sowers and reapers. 
The important thing is that we're prepared and willing to play our part, our unique part in the body of Christ, as together we build the, the kingdom of God. And fifthly, you can see it there on the screen, every worker in the harvest will rejoice together. Let me conclude with a brief comparison. It's no accident that chapters 3 and 4 are side by side. They both record Jesus interacting with one person. But that's about where the similarities end. Have a look at it on screen. Have Nicodemus and an unnamed woman. And you can go down those contrasts and look at the one at the bottom. With Nicodemus, there's an unknown outcome, at least at this point in the uh, gospel account. And at the end of chapter 4, she believes, she tells the whole town, and many of them come to meet Jesus. Friends, in a little while, we'll all be walking out that door. Can I ask you, which of those two responses are you more attracted to? Straight away, those of us who have been churchgoers for years should see the warning. At least on the outside, we look more like the Pharisee, the religious teacher. What will Jesus find in our hearts? Will pride or perhaps fear prevent us from trusting Jesus and telling others about him? Or will we, like this woman, delight in the news of living water and life in his name? Now, in a group this size, perhaps you're new to church. Perhaps you're new to the Bible and this person, Jesus, who we keep going on and on and on about. My encouragement to you is to be like the people of the town. When the woman told them about Jesus, they weren't content until they went and met Jesus for themselves. That way they could make up their own minds. I encourage you to do the same. Verse 42 is such a fitting conclusion. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. What wonderful words. I pray that we might hear that response again and again as people here in Shell Harbour hear the good news and discover Jesus for themselves and receive the living water that he alone offers and find the true satisfaction of life in his name. Amen.